Good morning. Our reading today is on page 586 in the Bibles in the Church, Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I had envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come its iniquity. Their evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? As in a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Good morning, good morning. Thank you, Andrea. Um, my name is Ed. I am the worship pastor here at HT. It's a joy for me to be able to lead worship from this position rather than that position. Um, one of the things that I've most enjoyed doing since I joined the staff here is opening the Bible and actually finding out what the Lord has to say to us about why and how we do that thing that we just did for 20 minutes. I must confess it's in a special, uh, especially large joy for me to be doing this on a day when it is so good to be English. <laughs> Apologies 
Apologies to our foreign friends, unless you're Scottish, in which case, no, I'm not going to apologize. Um, what a wonderful day. We're in the middle of a heat wave. We are, oh, the middle, that's slightly optimistic, isn't it? Uh, the English football team is in the semi-finals of the World Cup, and I'm wondering, when is it appropriate for me to crack out three lions in my worship set? If you don't tell Rupert, neither will I. Um, it struck me as I was watching England v. Colombia last week, Tuesday night, through the gaps in my fingers, um, that there are some things that do not benefit from analysis. There are some things that when you kind of take an aerial view and you think, just what are we actually doing here? The wonder and the joy is sucked out of them. And watching England is like that. Um, the only thing that would have been worse on Tuesday night than watching would be not watching. Um, and as I kind of jumped up and bellowed when Pickford saved that penalty, just as I spent ages trying to get our daughter to sleep, or more accurately, Emily had, it did strike me in a moment of clarity, why do I care about this so much? Has anyone else had this moment in the last few weeks? Why on earth does this make me feel like nothing could affect me more? In fact, it really came home uh, to me yesterday when me and my brother-in-law jumped up shouting at the telly, Raheem Sterling, lift your head up. Why can you not see the obvious ball to play? And my four-year-old niece, uh, in wisdom beyond her years, stood up on the poof in front of the TV and said, they can't hear you. <laughs> um, well, there, there are many things that do not benefit from us wondering about why and how we do them and they lose their wonder, but not so, not so with sung worship, because we have this book. We have this book. And when we open it and we analyze what we're doing and how we should do it and why, the wonder doesn't get sucked out of it. We find when we read this that what God has in mind for worship is so much more exciting, so much more challenging, so much more amazing um, than what we have in mind. We don't need to embellish this stuff. You know, we need to come up with new ways, new things of doing it because uh, this, this, this Bible is chock full of, of amazing examples. And as we look at them, as we, uh, as we look at why and how we do it, our wonder increases, which begs the question why we do it so little. You know, I must have been to 50 worship conferences, and we spend maybe half of each of our services singing praise to God, and I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on why we sing songs in church. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. And what that leads to, uh, if we don't talk about it, is a disconnect. Maybe you felt like this as you watched your friend or your spouse or your housemate tear themselves apart over watching this bunch of 11 people they are never going to meet, kicking a bit of leather around, and you thought, I don't get it. Why? What's, what's so important about this? And, and if we don't explain and open this book um, and actually work out what the Lord means by worshipping in spirit and truth, that's how we're going to feel. Have you ever felt like that about sung worship in church? You look around and you just think, what are you getting that I'm not getting? Because I'm not getting this. Disconnected. So we have two weeks. get to inflict myself upon you twice the double portion so we can look at but two facets of this diamond. Why? Why do we worship? But more specifically, why this? Why musical song worship? Because when we look through the scriptures, we just find singing, music coming up so much more than we would think. Today, I want to look at song worship as a primary place of transformation in the kingdom of God. So uh, keep your Bible open. We're going to walk through this psalm together. Let me pray. Lord God, we, we would come to you like your disciples came and said, teach us how to pray. Lord, we would say, teach us. Teach us how to worship. The last thing we'd want, God, is that you would say over us, over our church, as you said to the Pharisees, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. What a terrible thing. 
What a terrible thing for you to say about our worship. God, let it not be so. Teach us. Open this word to us. Amen. Amen. So have a look at the psalm with me. Psalm 73. I must have preached on this psalm maybe a hundred times. Every time someone comes and wants to join our worship team, the guys at the front and at the back on the tech, and the first thing we do is open this psalm, Psalm 73, to describe what it is we're aiming to do. Um, read with me. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Good start. So far, so orthodox. Downhill from here, I'm afraid. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? What's going on in this guy's head? I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is what is bugging him. This is what is buzzing around his head all the time. And if you look at the first half of the psalm, it's just listing this thing that's festering inside his mind about how well people are doing who pay no attention to God, who don't seek to obey him, who exploit others. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They are not played by human ills, etc., etc., etc. I love how human this is. Because the truth is, sometimes things get into our head like this, and every time we try and approach the Lord, what's going in our heads is just the same thing. This, 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 that relationship that's difficult, that way that person exploited you, that way that I've been treated that is not fair, the fact that I'm struggling to get by, whatever it is. Things get into our head, don't they? I think that's why the Bible sometimes causes, calls bitterness a root in the New Testament. Because when a root gets in there, it grows out of all proportion, and we cannot get past it when we try to approach the Lord. Just me? And that's what's happened to this, this guy here. Why? Why out of proportion? Just listen to this. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Or another, the new NIV says, they amass wealth. I love that. I love to amass some wealth. You know, not just growth in line with inflation. Let's amass some wealth. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Sounds like a nice life, doesn't it? Really? Is that what wicked people are like? People who don't know God? People who exploit their brothers and sisters? Always carefree? I don't think so. But I love how human it is. This is what it's like for us when something gets in our head like this. In fact, I will just quote the great Charles Spurgeon on the first half of this psalm because he puts it wonderfully, in a wonderfully politically incorrect Victorian manner. The psalmist had acted as if he knew nothing, had babbled like an idiot, had uttered the very drivel of a witless loon. Brilliant, isn't it? Typically pastoral Charles. Let's pause. This is not my random journal ramblings after someone was mean to me yesterday. This is a worship song written in the Bible. This is not just you and me writing in our diary. This isn't me sounding off to my best mate. This is a psalm. This is the worship songbook of the Bible. Why? Why did God put this here? He's so kind. He actually cares about my mindless dribble. When I'm a witless loon... He wants to hear what is on my mind. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God is writing down an amazing example of a worship song, and the first half of it is someone bringing that stuff just festering inside his mind to the Lord? You know, because at least he's being honest, right? He could have come in and just gone down the line of verse 1. God's good to Israel, to those who appear in heart. If I just keep singing this way, writing this way, no one's going to bat an eyelid. But he doesn't. He says what's on his mind, what's on his heart. There is, friends, there is a school of thought in worship that verse one of this psalm is what good worship looks like. All you do is come in, 
You sing some stuff that's fully orthodox, fully theologically correct about God, and that's what a good song is. Or uh, as I heard from a, a, a worship leader in the deep south of America with apologies for the accent that's about to come, when you come to church, leave your baggage at the door. Leave your baggage at the door. God doesn't want you to come in and sing about you. Leave it outside. Sing some stuff about God. That's what he wants to hear. You know, well, friends, there's a place for that in worship, right? If, if you're full of, when you find yourself full of darkness, sometimes what you need to do is turn a light on. Yeah, that's important. But why is this here? Because there's a place for God just saying, I want to hear what is on your heart. Is that part of your paradigm for what God is like? That what you're feeling, thinking here today, even if it's skewed, even if it's bitter, he wants to hear. He wants you to bring it to him. That's why this is here. And if your song is actually today, verse 1 to 16, or maybe something completely different, something festering away in there, like maybe the Lord would rather hear that from you today than something that's on the screen that someone else has, has written because you matter to him. Bring your baggage this morning into the place of worship. Sing your baggage. I'm, I confess, I, I love songs. I write a lot of the songs that we sing here, but I feel like we over-elevate the importance of worship songs. You know when you uh, buy a greetings card for somebody? And if you're slightly like myself, slightly more lowbrow person, you buy one of those cards with a pre-written message in it. And then if you're feeling classy, you might write around that message what you really mean. So in the little card, it'll say, many happy returns, have a wonderful day, thank you so much. But then around the card, right, you write something that, um, that you really want to say to that person. Or if you've been married for longer than five years, you say, I still love you, see last year's card for full details. <laughs> but I kind of feel like these songs we sing, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but they're kind of like pre-written messages, right? By Tim Hughes, by Charles Wesley, by me. I'm not comparing myself to Charles Wesley before. Don't email me again. Just kidding. Um, like, they're great. They help us. They start us off. They're the message in the card. But when you receive a thank you card, what do you look for? The pre-written message? It's what's written around. It's what's written around the card that means so much to you. Maybe that's how the Lord sees it. You know, if that's not the song on your heart today, well, yeah, please pray it over yourself. But if this is the song on your heart, something festering away in there, verse 1 to 16, bring it to him. This is Asaph, the writer of this psalm's song, and God wants to hear it. We must not be limited by the songs that I sing when I'm here. Do not let the songs that I pick and sing limit how you engage with the Lord. Use them as a pre-written message and build around them because he loves that. Let's get practical. When we're singing together Sunday morning, during the first song, I might not even sing a note. What I might do is spend some time bringing the Lord my verse 1 to 16. Now, for me, what that looks like is I speak it out or I sing it out because it helps me to focus. Perhaps for you, it means bringing it silence, your heart, whatever that looks like for you. But sometimes for me, it doesn't look like singing, we stand and lift up our hands with the joy of the Lord as our strength. Sometimes it does. But actually, what, what I'm trying to do there is just bring, use it, musical worship as a space to bring what I'm really feeling and thinking to the Lord and hand that over to him. And maybe then... I'll get to the holy is the Lord God Almighty by song two. We use the song as a pre-written message. So don't allow worship to be defined by particular songs. Lesson number one, worship is a space of transformation. Honesty, bring your baggage to the Lord because it matters to him. Not even the main lesson we get from this psalm. There's so much more. Um, have a look with me at verse 16, would you? 
When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Or the message version says it gave me a splitting headache. It weighed upon me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then, and then I understood. When I tried to understand all this, I, did, I didn't get it. It, just, it doesn't work. How? Why? Until, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Oh, friends, the until moments. Do you know what it is to have an until moment of worship with the Lord? Where you come in one way, you behold his majesty, and you are changed. The until moments of worship. Let's just look at what happens to this writer. After this verse 17, it's as if Asaph 2 comes and shoves Asaph 1 off the chair and says, you're not doing a great job, that song sucks, I'm going to write a better one. Look at what he writes. Perspective, verse 18. Surely these wicked people, they're not carefree. You place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed. He realizes these people, that they're not carefree. And the Lord will vindicate his people. But more than that, what's the real perspective he gets? Verse 23. The perspective he gets, and I believe this is something the Lord is always wanting to lay upon us when we're worshiping in song, is the infinitely surpassing value of knowing that we are in the presence of God. The infinitely surpassing value of knowing Jesus, that he is the pearl of great price. That's the perspective this guy receives. Just listen. This is the same guy who a minute ago was saying, always carefree, they amass, they amass their own wealth. Verse 23, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And listen to this. Can you pray this? I don't know if I can pray this. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. That's a big thing to pray. And what makes it even more amazing is that just a few verses before, he was talking about all the stuff that he desires that he doesn't have, even though he obeys God, and all those other people who don't know God have. What happened to him? What shifted his perspective in this way? This is a transformation of Gareth Southgate proportions, people. From penalty shootout bottlers to certain winners of the World Cup when I preach the second part of this sermon next Sunday. Someone say Amen. What happened? Verse 17, he entered the sanctuary of God. Do you see that? Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then, dot, dot, dot. What it means that he entered the sanctuary of God is that he became aware of the presence of God. He became aware of the presence of God. He beheld the Lord. What does this mean? Let's break this down a little bit. And I'm going to try and trace a thread from that verse to what we just did here Sunday after Sunday. Aware of the presence of God. Now, God is everywhere all the time, right? He made the universe, ground of all being, Psalm 139, if I go down to the depths, you're there. If I rise in the heights, even there your hand will guide me. But in the Old Testament, the Lord designed this place called the sanctuary, or later the temple, as a special place to meet with his people. And he said, if you come to that place, if you confess your sins, if you seek atonement, if you have a burden and you bring it to me, in this space, this is a special place where I will meet with my people. I will answer you. I'll make you aware of my presence um, the Bible uses loads of different words to describe this special space. Words like dwell, God dwells with his people. Huh? Doesn't God dwell everywhere all the time? Well, yeah, but in a special way, there are special times and places where he dwells with his people. Or the Bible says, you see God. What does it mean to see God? It means he becomes aware of God's presence with him. Or another way the psalmist puts it, as for me, it's good to be near God. How can you, aren't we near God all the time? Yeah. 
But in a special way, when he enters this place, the sanctuary, this place God has set aside and says, come here, seek me, and I will meet with my people. There's a nearness to the Lord that wasn't there before. I love how the KJV puts this, the word magnified. What do you do when you magnify something? You don't make it bigger than it is, right? You just get to see it. When you lift up a telescope to Saturn, you don't increase its size. You just get to see more of it. That's what magnification is. And that's what it's like when you come into the presence of God, as the Bible puts it, or the sanctuary of God. The psalmist says, like, he was there before, but now you get to see him. Now you behold him. And when you behold him and he's magnified, you are transformed. As Bill Johnson puts it, everything outside the presence of God is subject to distortion. Everything outside the presence of God is subject to distortion. What does that mean? It means that when we don't have these moments of coming deliberately into God's presence, laying our stuff before him, letting him reveal himself like this guy did and transform us, we become Psalm 73 part A in our lives. We've all been there, haven't we? We become starved of his presence. We become distorted. We don't think about things right. Summary, here's what happens to him. He enters God's presence. God reveals his glory, his beauty, his value, and he is transformed. Now, what does this mean for us? No temple, right? We don't have a sanctuary. We don't have a temple. We don't have to go to a special place to meet with God because God lives where? In us. Jesus opened the way. We come into the presence of God. If you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you as well as everywhere, all around us, all the time, just like he did before because Jesus tore the veil. But friends, this this movement of entering his presence deliberately and being aware of that, him revealing himself to you and us being transformed, this is still God's end game for us. Have a look at this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's going to come up here. We all, with unveiled faces, beholding, seeing, Becoming aware of the glory of the Lord. What happens when that happens? We're being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. When he's revealed, we're transformed. This is wonderful. This isn't making worship about us. It glorifies God to transform us because it shows how wonderful, how valuable, how beautiful he is. Do you get that? It's, it's not making worship about us to say, when we see him, we're transformed. Because he's not glorified by us sending off some abstract worship to him, saying, don't talk back to me, don't affect me. What really glorifies the Lord is as he reveals himself, we're transformed by him from one degree of glory to another. Not just an Old Testament thing, a New Testament thing. Okay, I'm going to continue arguing that this is not just for the Old Testament, but for us. Perhaps the best argument is, If we don't need to have these kind of moments with the Lord, because the Holy Spirit lives in us all the time, no sanctuary, then I would expect that we live in a constant state of Psalm 73, part B. No more bitterness, no more sin, no more skewed perspective. All the time we can pray, oh, earth has nothing I desire besides you. Well, maybe that's your war with the Lord, but I need this every day. I need this every day, a fresh revelation of the beauty of God and continual transformation by him. The only difference, friends, between this passage and what we have is we can have this anytime, anywhere, in the car, on the toilet, in your bedroom, and yes, here, Holy Trinity Church. Two things, two things about this dynamic, this entering God's presence, revelation, transformation. Firstly, this is, this is not just about a single dramatic moment like he had. This is a lifestyle, right? 
Sometimes it's not just about a verse 17, come in like this and bam, see the glory of God, everything different. Sometimes it's about you're, you're, you're just clinging on to a promise. You showed up to church today, even though it was a lot easier to stay at home because you love him and you want to see more of him. You know, that's a lifestyle of this. He reveals himself. He's tra- he transforms us. But sometimes, yes, sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes in our worship, not all the time, sometimes there should be moments when we can say, like the psalmist elsewhere, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. For a snapshot, through the dark should come a shard of light, sometimes for us. Earth has nothing I desire besides you, God. This is worth more than anything to me. There should be moments like that in our worship. I know it's not like that every day, and that's not to devalue the continual everyday transformation, but there should be some. Two, there are many ways that this kind of transformation happens. You know, one key way is the Bible. When I open the Bible, I'm not after accruing more information in my head. What I'm after is beholding God, just me. I don't want more information about him. I want to meet him. The Bible's not a textbook. The Bible is a telescope. When we open it, we get to encounter him. And as we encounter him and behold him, we are transformed by him. So many ways this happens. But, and here, the thread is being traced. Follow with me. I know it's early. A special way that this movement, this dynamic happens, he reveals himself we're transformed, is in sung worship of his gathered people. A special way, not the only way, but a way that as I opened this book, as I did Bible in a year for the first time a few years ago, I was amazed at how often sung worship comes up as a key way that the Lord does this of his gathered people. Why? Why is gathered people? Well, there's no temple, but actually, is there? What is the temple of the Holy Spirit now? We are. Not just us individually, God living in us, but also, if you pop that verse from 1 Peter up on the screen, in an important way, we, as the gathered people of God, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You also, you who believe in Christ, like living stones of the temple, all with our own funny little chips, smooth bits, differently shaped, are being built together into a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood. When we come together like we have today, Different stories, different songs, different Psalm 73 part ones. We form a temple and God dwells with us in a special way. It's not that he wasn't there before, but now he's near, he's magnified. You know, where two or three are gathered together, says Jesus, there I will be among you. Huh? Weren't you there before? Yeah, but not like this. So we gather in fellowship, in preaching, in prayer ministry, and yes, in song. This is why I love church. Because I, I see God in, when I'm with you in a way that I don't when I'm by myself. But why is it that the Lord moves in a special way in our song worship? It's always been this way. God has decreed that where he meets with his people, it will be surrounded by song, by music, all through the scriptures. Whenever I will provide that space, he says, where I will dwell with my people and I'll be magnified to them, there will be singing and music. It's how he wants it to be. You know, in the, the tabernacle of David, the prototype to the temple, there were 4,000 fully, fully, full-time employed musicians and 288 singers. 4,000. Also a good example of why not to hand over the uh, budget of a building project to the worship leader. The transform committee say, amen. 
Um, amazing. You know, this is why we read later on uh, in the scriptures, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the story of Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, who was faced with a vast army. What does he do? He sends singers out instead of an army. This is crazy. This is, this is what, what, what happened when I said this, when I preached on this a couple of years ago. My wife looked at me and said, it wouldn't work today, would it? Um, you know, why, why? Who would do this? He sent out worship leaders at the head of the army. And what happened? They sang, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. The Lord came down in a special way. He was there before, but as they sung praise to him, he was magnified. He turned up. He routed the army just because they sang worship to him. Because sung worship is a key place where his power breaks in and he is magnified. That's also a good reason why if you're in the middle of a crisis and you have 10 minutes to pray, as Derek Prince says, spend eight of them worshiping. Because in those eight minutes, you will orientate your heart and be filled by the presence of God so that those two minutes of prayer that you do will be far more powerful. And he will be magnified in you more than if you'd spent 10 minutes just listing the stuff about the problem that he already knows. This is why we read the Psalms and they start off one way. And by the time we get to the end, they're inexplicably another way. Because as he's been singing and meeting with God, God's been magnified and transformed. New Testament. This is why in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are in the jail... It specifically says they were singing psalms and hymns to God, and the jail cell walls broke down. Because as they sung praise to him, his power was magnified, and anything can happen when we sing praise to the Lord, because he comes down to dwell with us. This is why in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell. Huh? He's already here. Yeah, but dwell near you, among you richly. How? How do we do that? We teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Okay, I've appealed to the Old and New Testament. There's only one higher authority, the great Charles Simeon. (laughs) That was a joke. Again, no emails, please. Um, The famous vicar of our church in the 18th century. Just listen to his words. I love this. This this theology is not an invention of post-enlightenment Pentecostal Christianity. This is the Scriptures. And here's what good old Charles says. It is much to be regretted that in our worshiping assemblies, the greater part of the congregation never join in this part of the service. That's the praise and worship. They seem to think that they're not interested. And it may well be left to those few who've studied music as a science. Yes, my brethren, let me hope that many of you will unite your endeavors. Let not one be silent. And while we're united in singing the high praise of our God, may God himself come down in the midst of us and fill the house with his glory. May God himself come down in the midst of us and fill the house with his glory. That's still our prayer for Holy Trinity today, isn't it? You know, as as I finish, we sometimes see worship like a letter. You know, we, we package it up. It sounds lovely. It's together. It's slick. The theology's perfect, and we send it off to the Lord. But we forget What glorifies him as we do that is that he wants to speak back to us. He wants to transform us as we behold him. He wants to change us, sometimes in the everyday grind and discipline, and sometimes in dramatic Psalm 73 ways. It's not about whether we're musical or whether we like this style. I could take or leave styles. Like, if sung even song will allow us to see this, I'll do that. It will be terrible. I would not do that well. But I will. Who cares about the style? That's not in this book. What is in this book is this. That as we sing praise to him, he's magnified. We meet with him. And we are 
transformed. Okay, I'm going to finish now by reading you a couple of Psalm 73 stories from this church. Is that okay? We share these stories every time I gather with my worship team. Um, we, we kind of get some testimonies from what the Lord was doing when we sung praise to him. And what I love about these stories is we have no idea. We're up there. The coffee hasn't kicked in. We're tinkling on the bass guitar or the keys. And suddenly afterwards, someone says, do, do you know what just happened during that time of worship? And we hear, and we're blown away. Because when we're singing, the Lord's magnified, and it's not defined by my songs, my set. So let me, let me read you a couple of these, okay? And I promise I will finish. Um, one of these is by someone who finds it easy to connect with sung worship. Maybe that's you. The second is, is by someone who finds it less easy. So here's the first one. I have never experienced God like I did this evening in worship. That's a good start right there to a testimony. Just before the start of extended worship, a voice in my head told me to take your bag and leave. I was taken aback. This definitely wasn't my thoughts. I didn't want to leave. I was excited to stay for the longer worship time, so I began an internal battle and said, God, is that you? But I heard the words again, leave now, and I very nearly did. But then the voice gave the game away. It said, if you don't leave now, you're going to have an allergic reaction, which is something this person suffers from regularly. One thing I've learned from God is that when he gives me directions, he rarely explains why he's given them. So then I said, if this is you, Lord, I'm sorry, but I need to know it's you in a different way. And if you're not God, in Jesus' name, I command you to be silent. And the voice went silent. At that moment, this is just a few weeks ago in our church here, I felt the sadly familiar cold shivers run down my body. I was indeed going into allergic reaction. But before I repented for ignoring God, I felt from somewhere deeper in me the words, worship through the pain, I will take care of you. I now had no doubt this was God speaking. And I began to worship. Every time I set my eyes completely on God, my reaction stopped. But every time I wavered and began to worry, the reaction returned. So in the end, I gave in entirely to the presence of God. And oh my goodness, he turned up. There was a moment I fell to my knees in awe and felt waves of his presence pour over me. And I became aware I was kneeling directly before the throne of God. An enormous, glorious weight was pushing me smaller and smaller into a ball on the floor. And I knew I was incapable of humbling myself enough for his feet. I knew in that moment, if I looked up and opened my eyes, it would be as if I would die because I simply couldn't see his glory in this broken, messy body and yet live. But I absolutely knew he was right there in me, in front of me. I was grinning from ear to ear, ecstatically joyful, entirely peaceful, soaking in a moment of eternity. And then it was over. The church was still singing. I had forgotten I was there, but we continued to worship joyfully, undignified, and free. Isn't that amazing? Not even a mention of the songs that we were singing, because they're secondary. They're secondary when someone wants to encounter the Lord and he's magnified. Okay, second one. So when he finds it less easy naturally to connect with sung worship. Basically, I often find sung worship a tricky thing to get fully into. I've always been endlessly distracted by everything else going on. My own thoughts, to-do lists. Recognize this, anyone? Whether the guitarist taps what looks like a pedal before each song that does in fact set the metronome, or whether that's something totally different. And then meta-distraction about my own inability to focus and all that kind of thing. Um, it doesn't set the metronome, FYI, for the person who says. Um, more recently... I've been really struggling with it all a lot, and especially with the idea I'm just slightly out of sync with everyone else around me here. My natural listening choices would be classical music, all things non-loud electric, not in any way trying to criticize your leading slash approach, even with the crazy backing track shenanigans that often happens. Thank you, I appreciate that. So anyway, midweek this week, I was thinking to myself, maybe I should get your advice how we should do this worship thing, because I don't believe it should be affected by the style of music. That's a very secondary issue, amen. 
And I'm always ready to have those conversations. Please, please, please invite me for coffee so we can talk about that. Along with thinking to myself, I was talking to God and specifically said to him something like, it's not okay that I can only properly sing to you when it's this certain old hymn that I love. And she names this hymn, but I'll keep it um, private. Um, It's not okay that I can only connect with you through this hymn. That's just not what people sing anymore. But then I came into church and we sang it. First time we'd sang it for months, maybe years. And it made me burst into tears, partly because it's my favorite and the words resonate, but partly because it's one of the few things that causes me to block out everything else and truly focus on the things that I'm meant to focus on. And partly because God was being so kind, just giving me that moment where I could shut everything else out and do what we're created to do. He made it so easy for me, which was amazing. It doesn't answer the questions or solve the difficulties, but I guess that's the difference between what we want as opposed to the promise that we'll be given what we need. Friends, this, these stories, this is why I do this job. This is why we gather here quarter to eight on a Sunday morning to practice. It's not because we love music. Music's good, but I ain't getting up that early for that. You know, when I've worked here for a few months and you begin to, to peel back the skin on the stuff that we all go through, right? Some of it gets a lot worse than Psalm 73 part A. And you realize, working here a bit, that my well-written song or put-together worship set or perfectly honed sermon ain't going to help when you're going through a painful divorce or your kids won't speak to you or you have to battle through depression for another Sunday. I, I can't do anything about that, but there is one. There is one who can. There is one who can give us hope to fight on. There is one who can give us until moments as we enter his presence. And that's why, that's why we do this. Should we stand together? It would be a shame to, to leave this stuff without putting it into practice. Um, I invite you to stand. In a minute, when we're going to do this, I want to say, if you want to sit or kneel or step somewhere else, that is absolutely fine. Please do that. It just makes it easier for us to do that if we first stand so that you don't feel like a lemon when you're the only one standing. Um, we're going to play a song now. And in the first part of this, it's just going to be music. No words on the screen. This is a chance for us to do Psalm 73, part A, okay? Whatever is on your heart during this music playing, just bring it to him. And maybe like me, you find it helpful to speak that out loud quietly, to focus you. It may be that you find it easier to do it in your heart. That's fine. Whatever you want to. Just bring that to him. You're right around the card, right around the greetings card to him. And feel free to kneel, to stand, to sit, whatever you'd like. And this might not be a dramatic moment for you, but it might be the first time in years you've actually come into this place and just not felt constrained by these songs and said, Lord, this is how I feel. It's flawed, it's skewed, but I'm going to tell you anyway because you're my father and you want to know. You know and that's, that's precious, whether it's a dramatic moment or not, right? Just sharing a moment with our father. And then we're going to sing a couple of times around this verse. There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. And we're going to sing that because it's a declaration of God's all-surpassing worth, right? Just like what this guy realizes, like, earth has nothing I desire besides you. And if you don't feel that, that's okay. What I want to invite you to do is sing that as a prayer over your life. Sing that and say, I'm not going to stop by saying, oh, well, you know, there's nothing worth more. I don't feel that. No, instead, come into his presence and say, Lord, this is not what I feel. Tell him that. But then say, it's true. There is nothing 
There's nothing worth more. I know it to be true. Sing your way into the truth. Because that's a key dynamic of how we're transformed in worship. So as we do this, just bring him, bring him that, that part A now, that Psalm 73 part A. Bring that to him. Your father, he sees you. He wants to see what's on your heart. cares about your song. It matters to him. This is a miracle. This is the gospel. for some of you that you know that there is a root in there something is growing in there and it's very painful it's very painful for you to bring this to God it's like peeling off the plaster and exposing the wound he's here the father to give us a place of safety where we can bring that to him so I just want to encourage you expose the wound bring your baggage even if you haven't for months for years even if it's easier just to sing surely God's good to Israel to those pure in heart just bring it to him declaration of God's worth. There's nothing worth more. 